Acts chapter 15. We'll be looking at the first five verses of Acts 16. Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. This morning's text begins the record of Paul's second missionary journey, and we want to remember, as I provide just a little bit of context, he's finished his first missionary journey, and we must assume that weeks, if not months, were spent at each of the cities that he's traveled through in his first journey. On that first journey, he traveled west from Antioch in Syria, set sail for the island of Cyprus. Once he reached Cyprus, he ministered along the southern coast until he reached the port of Paphos. There he and Barnabas and Mark set sail north for the port of Perga in southern Turkey. Mark left them there. Paul and Barnabas traveled on north to Antioch of Pisidia, and then from there he turned east. He and Barnabas turned east. They had good success along the way. They were able to win souls. They were able to develop and nurture disciples. Began some churches, some small, began as small groups, but some churches, believers coming together to worship and learn and trust the Lord. But they also experienced some resistance. Some very determined Jews in Antioch began to stir up the people against them and began to accuse them and even threaten to persecute them. So Paul and Barnabas left for Iconia and Lystra. They reached the cities of Lystra and Iconia. And in Lystra, after healing a lame man, the people got excited. They had never seen anything like this. They thought Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. Come to them in the flesh. So they started to make an offering to these gods. And Paul and Barnabas tried to stop them. It wasn't long after that that the persecutors from Antioch followed them there and stirred up the crowds again, and Paul was stoned outside the city and left for dead. But the next day, but he revived later on that day, the next day, Paul and Barnabas left for the city of Derby, further east. In Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 14, verse 21, when they preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and it made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So they had traveled as far east as they as Derby, and then they started working their way back, meeting all of the people they had won for the Lord before and encouraging them and teaching them more. And they made it all the way back to Antioch. And if you remember, Acts chapter 15 dealt with this, with this problem they had about the issue of circumcision and the law of Moses. But in this morning's text, Paul begins his second missionary journey leaving Antioch and Syria with Silas. 
he travels north, not across the water at first, but this way north. He was closer to Derby this way, and he wanted to go back and visit some of these people who he had met before. Acts 16, verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to, be, to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him and because, of the Jews, because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observances the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Believe it or not, there's a big chunk of information that we can glean from these few verses. Allow me to pray, and then we will dig in. Father, we ask that you may be with us this morning. Help us to be faithful to you in what we do here this day. Help your servant to be clear as we unfold these verses. Help us find what is here for your church and for your people. For we long to be faithful to you and we long to see your glory. Amen. The success of the church is often measurable. True or false? The success of the church is often evident. The success of a church is often obvious. Let me rephrase that just a little bit. The blessing of God upon the church is often measurable or evident or obvious. Can we honestly say that? If we were to ask that question to our... How do we know that the blessing of God is upon us? And how do we know that this little congregation is successful? You look at the world today, and I, I, I get them in my email, and I see them on Facebook. They're coming up all the time. Ministerial services that promise explosive church growth if you subscribe to their plan. What are the best markers to use in order to measure a church's success? Is it numbers? Is it a church's popularity? Are those good measures of success? What about a church's wealth? What about the happiness of their people, the congregation? Is that a good measure? How many churches choose to be faithful to the Lord and his word? Wouldn't that be a good measure of success? How many Christians strive or even desire to be faithful to the Lord and his word? If we're going to ask ourselves, what is the measure of a successful church? Is it how many people are attending or how happy the people are or how faithful are the people to the word of the Lord? 
I know it's always encouraging to see people gather together in great number, giving praise to the Lord. When our full congregation is here, it is enjoyable. It is fun to hear everyone singing. But numbers are not always the best measure of a successful church. Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said, He who began a good work in you shall be faithful to complete it, shall be faithful to perfect it, until the day of Christ Jesus. He is always working in you to perfect you to complete what he has for you. So I would propose that the measure, the proper measure, the true measure of a successful church, no matter how large or how small, the true measure is the obedience and faithfulness of the Christian, the obedience and faithfulness of the congregation. There were so many Christians back in the 1980s who were just so moved by the late President Ronald Reagan because he quoted 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, he was suggesting that was a good idea for all the citizens of America. But it's meant for the true people of God. A lot of people were encouraged because, oh, yes, let's all pray for our nation together. Let's seek the Lord in prayer. But it also says to seek my face. God calls us to seek his face, to try what we can spiritually to look him eye to eye. And we can do that in the word. And turn from their wicked ways. Repent. This is one of the greatest if-then statements. If my people will do these things, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So the proper measure for a successful church or the proper measure for a successful Christian is their obedience and faithfulness to the Lord and to his word. We'll look at three points this morning. And I see them in this passage. They touch upon other parts of Scripture, but it's helpful to gain those, glean from those as well. We want to look at a faithful parent, a faithful disciple, and all faithful to the call of Christ. A faithful parent, a faithful disciple, and all faithful to the call of Christ. We are looking at their faithfulness and obedience to the Lord in order that we might see why did the church grow so quickly in the early part of this first century. Since Pentecost, the church was growing exponentially. People were getting saved. 
because the apostles were being faithful, there was resistance and there was some heresy creeping in, but the apostles were continually being faithful. Acts 16.1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, a disciple there named Timothy, the son of the Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. I know that you might think that this is talking about Timothy, and it is, but I also want you to see the son of a Jewish woman. Here was a faithful parent who was a believer, but she was married to a Greek, to a Gentile, someone who was not Hebrew. Now, there are some problems inherent in this, inherent in this because we know that in the Old Testament, Scripture taught Israel that they were not to marry interracially because God said you would follow the idols of the nations around you. Marry only within your own people, within Israel. Do not follow the idols of the world. Do not Bring them into you unless they are ready to repent and believe as you do. Do not let them come in. The Apostle Paul follows up on that same principle in 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? But here in Acts chapter 16, we see someone who was unequally yoked. And we do not know the details of the marriage. There could have been some, back then, arranged marriages were very popular. They're very often practiced. And this could have been some kind of arranged marriage. There could have been family debt that would have been absolved. Had she married this one, there are all kinds of dynamics that could have been. We don't know. It's never offered. But we see in several places in Scripture, Paul speaks of this mother and her mother, Timothy's grandmother, as being faithful to the word of the Lord. When did she become a believer? We know that she was probably following Scripture from texts we find in Second Timothy, but it's possible that she could have become a believer, a follower of the Messiah, the first time Paul and Barnab- Barnabas visited Lystra. Perhaps they were among the disciples who looked over Paul's body after he was stoned and left for dead. We can't be sure, but assuredly they knew about it if they were not there. Second Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace and mercy and peace from God of the Father of Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith, that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure it dwells in you as well. And in Second Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy 
that his mother was teaching him when he was a child. From your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. When I was looking at this text, I thought this might be a great text for a Mother's Day message. But here is a mother who was married to an unbeliever, to a Gentile, and yet she was faithful enough, passionate enough about the Word of God and about the truth of Scripture that she made sure her son knew. And when they heard the gospel of the crucified and risen Savior, they received him gladly and with joy. Their souls had been prepared. Their spiritual soil for growth and new birth had been prepared. And they received Christ as their Lord and Savior. However, because of the Father's influence, Timothy had not yet given, been given the mark of a Jew. He had not been identified as Hebrew, although he was born so. It suggests some spiritual differences and some spiritual preferences within the home, but they weren't final. Timothy's mother, Eunice, had a great deal of influence on her son. The Bible gives us counsel about unequally yoked marriages. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is from 1 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul is teaching that the believing parent of an unequally yoked marriage has the responsibility, has the authority to teach the Lord to their children. has the authority and the responsibility to teach the Lord and his word to the children. Eunice was a faithful parent, made sure that her son knew the Lord. It is a Christian's parent's authority to teach the children in the family all that they should know. Parents need to take responsibility and oversight of what their children are learning from Scripture at church and at school. It doesn't matter if you go to public school or Christian school. Parents should have their, they should be involved with their children, what's being, what they are learning. We see a faithful parent, Eunice and Lois, the grandmother as well. Next we want to look at a faithful disciple, Timothy. 
Again, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that he was the father of a Greek. You might want to pause and think, we just got through looking at chapter 15 that dealt with this. Paul said that the Greeks didn't have to go through this situation, this, this ceremony to make them officially Greek or Hebrew. Why is he insisting that Timothy do this? First of all, Timothy was considered to be Jewish. Paul was still working among a lot of the Jews who did not know, did not understand, were just learning, and were very slow to accept. Many Jews still had an issue about the requirements of the law of Moses. And Paul did not want to offend. So he had Timothy assume the official identity of a Jew. Let me try and illustrate a little bit, if I can. And this is not dumbing it down too much, but it, it kind of makes the point to a time and space that we can understand. The seminary received a phone call from a senior assisted living facility. Elderly baby boomers living in the senior's home needed a new chaplain. They enjoyed going to a chapel service every Sunday morning and a study on Wednesday night, and they very often liked singing hymns together. So they called the local seminary. And the seminary was very careful about who they sent because you don't send a young man with pierced ears, tattoos, and spiked hair dressed in a t-shirt and jeans to preach to a bunch of baby boomers. You'd be surprised how many preachers there are today who are dressed like that in the pulpit. You need to be aware of the audience you're speaking to. You need to be aware of the people you witness to. If you're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you're going to share the gospel, you need to, with wisdom and prayer, meet people where they are in order that you might be able to communicate that because people may not even listen to you just by how you're dressed or how you speak. If young people are preparing for the gospel ministry, if young men are preparing to preach in churches, I certainly would recommend that they learn to pull their pants up and wear a belt, if you know what I'm saying. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 said, 
To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So the Apostle Paul was just trying to identify with the people he was ministering to, and he was trying to teach Timothy, his disciple, the same kind of principle. A faithful parent, a faithful disciple, and then all faithful to, to, to the call of Christ. Verse 4 in our text, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance and decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. If you remember what they, the letter, that the official statement about the law of Moses that they came up with, they concluded with in Acts chapter 15, this is what Paul and Timothy and Silas were delivering to the people. They came, they prepared to meet them in the same place, on the same level, and say, we don't have to do this anymore. We are free. And yet we come in a way that we will not offend. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So those who were outside of Israel, who were Gentiles, who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, did not have to identify as though they were Jews. They did not have to be circumcised. They did not have to respect the ceremonies. Of course, they had to respect the law of God, but the ceremonial laws were null and void. They were all faithful to the call of Christ. And we conclude by saying the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Faithful to the call of Christ, faithful to his word, faithful to the Lord, there is the measure of success. God will bless faithfulness to his word, faithfulness to the Lord. He does not bless confusion. He does not bless a watered-down gospel. He does not bless a redefined gospel. He blesses truth to his word. A faithful call to the call of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that you have given us this day in your word. We ask, Lord, that you may help us be faithful to you. We pray that you might reveal to us the truths that we need to follow and that your Holy Spirit might give us the strength and the ability to follow well, that we may be yours forever. In Jesus' name, amen.